Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we're talking with fantasy author Namina Forna. To put things mildly, Namina has had quite an incredible year. Her debut YA novel, The Gilded Ones, was an instant New York Times bestseller and has already been optioned for a film adaptation by Make Ready. And that's just for her first book. The second installment of her trilogy, titled The Merciless Ones, is set to come out in April of this coming year. I had a great time talking with Namina about this rich and intense book. As regular listeners know well by now, I am not typically inclined towards the YA or fantasy genres, but Namina's book was truly something else. I loved getting to talk to her about how growing up in Sierra Leone influenced her writing, why she feels so passionate about writing fantasy, and what's next on the docket for her as both an author and a screenwriter. So without delaying any further, I give you my conversation with the talented Namina Forna. Namina, welcome to It's Lit. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It is exciting. It's exciting for us as well. You know, your book, The Gilded Ones, has gotten a tremendous amount of buzz this year since it came out in February. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. I will tell you off the bat that I am a fantasy genre novice. So we're going to have like, I'm going to have some questions. But before we get into that, uh, we do have a, a kind of a ritual here at It's Lit with all of our guests. Because this is a podcast about Black books, Black thinkers, and Black ideas. Um, You know, I always like to ask our authors if there was a book or books, doesn't have to be a Black one, but something that deeply influenced your path, your journey, blew your mind, was like, Yes, this is it. This is the truth, the light, and the way. What book or books might that have been for you? Um, I think it was uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, because I read that in, I believe it was like ninth or 10th grade. And I had, like, back then, you know, like when you just, you don't have the range for it yet. I didn't have the range. (laughs) But I read that book, and it just sort of, like, opened my mind to so many things that I Mm -hmm. had never thought of before. And I'd never seen literature done in that way before, because like, I, I'm a fantasy person all the way. So like, you see me, I'm just always reading fantasy. But like, when I read The Blue Aside, I saw the way that literature could influence people to think about things on a deeper level, and could sort of encourage them to, like, not just take it at face value, but to go in and see what's working under there. And I was like, you know what? That's the sort of writer I want to be. Like, I don't want to be like as sort of academic, um, but like, I want to be the type of writer when people read my work, they're like, huh, this makes me think of things. So now let me go off and go deeper. I mean, you know, Tony is a, a perennial favorite here at uh, It's Lit and for good reason. We have gotten that answer many times and everybody has their own angle on it, which I love. I just love that so much because that's really what literature is supposed to do is, you know, to to glean all these very individual perspectives and and become applicable to us in, in myriad ways. And um, so I love that answer as well, because I'd never gotten that one before. <laughs> but, you know, interestingly enough, uh, coincidentally, I should say, uh, you, at least one outlet reviewing The Gilded Ones, uh, referred to you as potentially being the Toni Morrison of YA fantasy. 
which I'm sure is not a small thing to <laughs> to yeah. hear or to live up to. How do you feel when you hear things like that? I always feel that there's only one Toni Morrison. True. Um, I feel that while that is a very beautiful comparison and a very flattering comparison, I feel that I am a different writer from her and there can only be one her. I mean, I agree. I mean, yeah. you know, Toni is... It, yeah. I I talk a lot on this podcast about our canon, you know, what it means for, like, what is the Black canon? What does that look like for us? And granted, Toni Morrison is canon way outside of the uh, African diaspora, so to speak, or the African-American diaspora. But to us, you know, she is definitely one of those, I think, sacred talents. So I'm inclined to agree with you. And (laughs) Um, But that does not make what you've done here any less impressive. I mean, this was an instant New York Times bestseller. And you have kind of, um, it's interesting because it's falling into this moment where we are seeing in the last several years, this rise of incredible talents like yours, um, who are really making an impact on this uh, entire fantasy. And, and I would extend that to say, you know, sci-fi realm in terms of, of saying, yes, we belong here too. Now you've said, you, you just said that you've been a fantasy person always. So, how did you get introduced to fantasy? Um, basically, it was Greek mythology. Greek mythology. <laughs> when I was growing up in Sierra Leone, like my dad was like my dad was an avid reader. He had like this enormous library that was just all from wall to wall. And he'd been teaching me to read from the time I was small. So like by the time I was four, basically he handed me a dictionary and was like, you're ready to go off on your own now. Here's a dictionary. <laughs> Figure it out. If you need my help, I'm here. And so, of course, the first books that I read were Greek mythology. And then from there, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the green fairy book. Like it's like this sort of compendium of fairy tales. So I read that. And like from there on, I was just hooked. And like I like was a voracious reader because like I grew up during the Soviet Union uh, Civil War. And like, you know, there was always blackouts and stuff. So you couldn't really watch TV. And like you really needed something to escape. And so my escape was reading and I would read anything. Like if somebody put a book there, I would grab it and I would read it. Like so that's sort of how I got into it. Well, you know, I love that correlation between Greek mythology and and what you're writing now. And it's I, I say that because and I'm going to admit this reluctantly to you. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, as I said, I'm a bit of a novice when it comes to fantasy. And I'll even say mm-hmm. that I was like, no, 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 no. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't do fantasy. I don't do fantasy. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so lately I have been, uh, exploring because how can you not, you know, with yeah. all these incredible voices coming through, how can you not get into it? Um, but you just brought something home for me that I'm like, oh, wow, maybe I was into it the whole time and I just didn't know. So. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that is fantasy. And so, you know, and I love, I love what you were just saying about your dad because it reminded me a lot of my own upbringing. But that aspect of growing up in the midst of a civil war, obviously war is a huge component of this narrative as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know a lot of people like, you know, I mean, I, I know that this is basically considered YA, correct? Yes. Um, but I was like reading, I was like, this is dark. <laughs> you, know, like, you weren't prepared? I'm like, this is dark. This is visceral. This is violent. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, I wouldn't even know where to begin to write that kind of, like those kind of descriptions, these really, really vivid descriptions of what 
you know, kind of like certain acts of barbarism look like, right? So speaking that way, like, how do you, um, how how does that process work for you? I've talked to people about writing romance and love scenes. I've never really talked to people about writing things like eviscerations and, you know, like. Uh, you know, what's the funny thing is whenever people start describing horrific things to me, I literally can't handle it. And then I write all these things. Um, and I think for me, it was a case of wanting to be truthful. So yes, The Gilded Ones is fantasy. Um, and I personally think it's like, you know, a transportive fantasy and that it takes you to this magical world where there are girls who like, you know, are, who are like, you know, each one a Wonder Woman, each one a Dora Milahi. Like, so it's like all of that and there's all that. But at the same time, what I really wanted to examine with this book, or rather what my intent in like writing this book was, I wanted to explain to people what a patriarchal society looks like. I wanted to explain, you know, who benefits, what systems support it, you know, who suffers under it. Because this was sort of my experience growing up, not only in Sierra Leone, but also in America. It was just that in Sierra Leone, there was a brutal version of a patriarchy. Um, and I saw it sort of very keenly during the war, even with like what happened to some members of my family. So when I thought about what would happen in a world where there are these women and, you know, they're faster and stronger, they bleed gold, what would happen realistically in a world with women like that? I was like, ah, I have to explain what are the depths that people will go to when they want to objectify someone who is so powerful and when they want to use that. So I think that the violence was necessary. And, and what I made extremely sure of was that no scene of violence was without cause, you know, like there was no extraneous violence. There was no, like everything always had a cause um, that could always sort of be tied back to the theme of understanding what it is that happens to women's bodies, but not only women's bodies, but basically anybody who doesn't fit into the norm in a system like that. So yes, it was gruesome. Yes, it was violent, but I will tell you this. So like, one of the ways that I sort of got myself into gear was watching 300 and Spartacus Blood and Sand. And I was like, how do you describe that? But also based on like my own personal experience, I was like, okay, this is what it feels like. This is what it looks like. And I went from there. I mean, it is, it is visceral. It is vivid. It's incredibly visual, which I know, you know, is also due in part to the fact that you are also by trade a screenwriter. Yes. <laughs> and we will double back to that. <laughs> so I'm sure you have a totally different understanding of how to articulate those scenes than maybe your average fiction writer would, you know, who's kind of coming out the gate. But you are doing a lot here in terms of this kind of multi-layered discussion of patriarchy, this multi-layered discussion of things like, you know, heteronormativity and, you know, all sorts of things, right, that are all very current discussions we're having right now. And of course, what you just touched on, obviously, it's incredibly vivid right now in terms of this, once again, <laughs> this regulation of women's bodies. And, and that is really the crux. I mean, that's, you don't, you don't, there's no easing into this book. It just kind of, you know, <laughs> you kind of, <laughs> you jump in to, you know, some pretty significant Trauma. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, 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 trauma, trauma is a word yeah. <laughs> there. Um, but you know, these purity tests, right? I mean, we have all kinds of purity tests in the world and, and, um, on many levels, some very literal and some very subtle. But you jump right in there. Why, why did you decide to open there? 
Um, so one of the things about growing up in Sierra Leone is that uh, we have a strong culture of female genital mutilation, FGM, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it sort of looms in that 90% of women in my country have been circumcised. And I'm very thankful that I had educated parents who were like over my dead body. But you know that that is something that every girl sort of has to not look forward to, but to dread. Although they always, this is the thing that I find very interesting is when uh, people want to do horrific things to other people, they always couch it in ways like, oh, it's good for you. It makes you pure. It makes you this. It makes you that. And so I wanted to talk about that. And I wanted to talk about what it means to grow up in a space like that and what it means to anticipate that. And and yes, like, you know, FGM is something that happens in Sierra Leone, but here there are so many other things that happen in girlhood that are quite frankly awful and traumatic. And as girls, you sort of, um, and as girls or femme or femme presenting people, you sort of like know this is a rite of passage, but it's a horrific rite of passage. And everyone is always like, no, but it's good for you. Or, or the worst one, this is the way that it is. Right. And so that's what I wanted to touch on. And that's why I drop you right in there because that is the reality for so many girls, so many femme presenting people across the world and not only um, girls and, and femme presenting people for, but boys as well. Everybody has their, their thing that is, that is supposed to be good for you. But then when you look at it, you're like, but is it really? And, and also this, this idea that, you know, this idea of assimilation, how traumatic it can, can be to yeah. assimilate or to not be able to assimilate, yeah. uh, you know, as, as your main character, uh, Deka experiences and this rejection of family. Yeah. You know, the, the the people who are supposed to be closest to you. I, I hope I'm not spoiling much by saying that. It happens fairly early. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I think that obviously that's an experience that so many people go through, um, you know, to the extent that those of us who don't go through that for whatever reason, or, you know, whether it's because we can fit in or pass or whatever, you know, whatever, you're almost considered lucky at a certain point because you hear these stories of people just kind of outright rejecting. Yeah their own children. Um, I do want to double back to this discussion, this, the, the more feminist discussion here of, um, I don't know if it's more feminist actually, but, <laughs> uh, but this woman warrior thing, because this is a theme that we have seen. Uh, I mean, it's, it's something that's existed obviously for centuries, but it's something that we have seen emerge in narrative form more and more over the past several years. And, you know, here you're, I mean, it's full force. Like this is like, you know, you know, you reference the Dora Milaje from um, Black Panther and, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking like the, the women warriors of Dalme, you know, like, yeah. I'm like, oh. And that's actually the basis. Know? Okay. Yeah, okay. So, okay. So my dad loved his African history and he would tell me all these stories and I'd be like, ah, oh, Papa, you're making it up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, you're just telling me tall tales. Cause he told me all this stuff about like ancient Africa. Cause he was really, really into it. And, you know, at the time I could not grasp that the things that he were, he was saying were real, even though I was literally in Africa. And when I went to college, I went to Spelman, like sort of that image of those women warriors stuck in my mind, like the Amazons of Dahomey, like they just, they were always there. And I, and I remember watching 300 and being like, 
why can't we have one with all just women? Like these dudes are out here running in sandals, but I want to see like women do this. And so that's sort of like where the little hints of it came from. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You also kind of give us a lot of, this is, I'm to, I was just talking about how it's been appearing in pop culture, but you also give us some kind of like pop cultural nods here at least it felt like it me. <laughs> i was like well callous i love it like, like stuff like this is, i mean it's fun yeah. you know like these little like these little you know little nods little nods um was that just like a deliberate like i mean was that for you was it for your audience i mean you know it's just kind of an offhanded question because i thought it was so i don't want to say cute i don't want to trivialize it but i was like oh it was for me uh because like so initially the character's name was Vanas. But like, I just, it didn't feel right. And then one day I was reading that Cardi B's name was Belcalis. And I was like, Belcalis, huh, that sounds ancient. And then I was like, this girl, she's sort of belligerent. Like she's aggressive, belligerent, mm-hmm. Belcalis, Belcalis, that's it. And also it helps <laughs> that I love Cardi B, man. So I was like, yes, there we go. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, and Cardi B pulls no punches. She she can be a belligerent. She can be. Yeah. She she and she's unapologetic, but she's also incredibly smart and you know, yeah, savvy as we know. Yeah. Um, tuned into civic <laughs> events, yes. all those good things. So, in doing something like this, now you know. Again, you are also a a screenwriter, and you know it is is worth saying. I mean, this book which came out in February, The Gilded Ones. Aside from being an instant New York Times bestseller, you instantly, you know, you had kind of a deal out the gate, which I understand you were adapting, which makes sense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, obviously this is not an uncommon narrative now. You know, like this is almost expected, I think, for fiction writers especially, you know, as as we're seeing more and more books come out, you know, that's it's become a huge market to go from page to screen. Given your own career trajectory, like when you're writing, is that what you're having in mind? Are you thinking to yourself, okay, I need this to like translate like Game of Thrones, like, <laughs> you know, like what, how, how's that, how does that work in terms of process? Um, it's funny because every story that I have like comes in its own, what is the word? Not genre, but in its own medium, right? So like the Gilded Ones, like originally I wrote the book in 2012 and I was like, this is a book. But I was like, it's going to be a movie. Like that was sort of always like in the back of my mind. But I didn't write it to translate into a movie. I just wrote it as it is. And then I was like, we'll see what movie emerges from this. Um, because for me, each each sort of iteration of the work is different and separate from itself. Like they are two different things. And like 
I, I don't know if like, I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's just sort of how my mind works. No, it makes like, sense. This will translate to this, but it's not going to be the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that, I think that makes sense. I think it also, you know, speaks to kind of um, <laughs> at the risk of, <laughs> at the risk of uh, making a, some sort of pun here. But, you know, it, it does speak to a, a purity of process in a weird sort of way that like, you know, this, this exists within its container and yes, it can, exist out of that container, but this is the container in which I created it. So I, I get that. That makes yeah. sense to me. Um, but as you're adapting, I mean, you know, I guess additionally, because this is part of a trilogy, this is the first yes. book in a trilogy. So I guess my tag on question to that would be, you know, when you're writing this, like, you know, when you're outlining this particular story, which you say, you know, began almost a decade ago, right? When you wrote this book, are you simultaneously outlining what happens next? Are you simultaneously envisioning this as sequels? Are you, are you saying, okay, well, this is just the beginning of this journey and I've got the first, like, you know, 400 pages of this thing. <laughs> and, you know, like then what happens? Because I know the Merciless Ones is coming out in April of next year. So obviously this is, you know, a thing, so to speak. Are we going to see like 10 books? You know, is this like a C.S. Lewis? Like, yeah. <laughs> no, this, this, is, this is a trilogy trilogy. And so like basically um, when I first had the idea for the Gilded Ones, I had the opening image and I had the closing image. And I was like, OK, now you need to fill in the um, in the middle. And so as I was sort of pitching this book, I have like a one line of in book one, this happens. Or like in book one, Deka discovers this. In book two, Deka discovers this. And in book three, Deka discovers this. And so then I have to like fill in what happens. But I finish book one, put it aside, and then I write the outline for book two. But I already sort of have like a vague idea of what's happening because it all has to end at the end point that I have. So uh, <laughs> it, it sort of does have to all tie together and like, you know, be packaged. Mm-hmm. But it also, I'm I'm sure, breeds a lot of expectation, both in, you know, publishing circles and also in other circles this work is probably going to be existing in, uh, in terms of, I mean, when you put out something like this and it's already in film form, then it's like, oh, well, we would like more of that thing. Like, what is <laughs> it? <laughs> you know what I mean? So in terms of creating a world, um, because I always, I'm always fascinated by this part. Oh, you know, I'm a very, like, I feel like you're about to ask me my favorite question. I'm ready. I'm ready. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm world. interested in, yeah, I, I am. I'm interested in this construction of a world. And, 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 you know, I know that, um, there is a pan Africanist lens on this, um, which, you know, we are, we are seeing in other works as well, which I think is dope for, you know, people who will never get to experience it in that way. I think it's like incredible to be able to do that through this vehicle. But yeah, can we talk? Like, I would, I would love to hear about my the construction of this world. Has yes. Okay. All right. So <laughs> this is my favorite question. I love, so I always knew I wanted to be a world builder. That was what I set out okay. to do. Okay. Um, okay. You know, from the time I was small. And I was like reading my dad's little history books and I was reading about like the walls of Benin and like the castles in Ethiopia and like the libraries of Timbuk too. I was like, I want to talk about this, right? So with the world building, um, for me to construct a believable world, I have to do a lot of research. I feel like you have to have a solid basis and a firm footing in reality in order to just say, all right, cool, I got it, and like lift off into fantasy, right? 
So I spent years reading like all these dry, dusty textbooks about all the ancient different cultures and civilizations across Africa. And I read it enough that it would sort of sink in deep so that I could then create my own thing, right? Um, the other thing was like, I am a documentary buff when it comes to like Blue Planet, Seas of Life and Planet Earth. I watch those things sort of like I can actually like, um, I can actually narrate along with David Attenborough. Like that's how <laughs> deeply I know this. And it, and it's it's as a world builder, it's sort of important because like, if you understand what ancient cities look like, how people lived back in that time, what animals like, what animals are like, how do they live? What do they eat? You know, what are their national mechanisms and defenses? You can create other things out of them. And that's the whole thing about world building is you take what is real and you put your own twist on it and then it becomes something else. And that's like sort of the joy, the part of fantasy that makes you lift off. Well, I, I, you know, this is one of those moments, you know, I, a lot of our listeners know that we record these on Zoom because we like these conversations to be as, as organic as possible. But this is one of those moments that I wish our listeners could see your face light up when you talk about this and the grin from ear to ear talking about creating these worlds. And, you know, you led me very nicely to my <laughs> next question, which you're talking about drawing on ancient civilizations to create this world. And again, you are now part of a... I think, amazingly growing list of ridiculously talented, particularly women who are working in this space, Black women who are working in this space. And and that, you know, on this spectrum, I guess, from sci- sci-fi to fantasy, I, you know, I guess what I'm, the question I'm asking is like, you know, when we see this in the non-Black world, you know, the world that we've come to, the, the mostly white world that we've come to know as when we think about sci-fi and fantasy, you know, we don't talk about things like Afrofuturism. Like, these are not it's just not like nobody's thinking about it from that perspective. Do you consider this to, do you consider what you do, you know, as a genre and even I guess as a growing community that this is part of that tradition, that Afrofuturist tradition, even though you're drawing on something that's obviously really ancient and rich and, and inherited in many ways? You know, it's funny because I get this question a lot um, and I've been sort of rethinking it because at the outset, like you asked me that and I'm like, no, um, I'm a fantasy writer. I am a solidly fantasy writer. And the reason why I say that is because so often Black people are denied a home in fantasy. Like in the beginning, you talked about how you're not a fantasy, like you're not a fantasy person. And you know what I thought in the back of my mind? I was like, probably because there weren't any Black people in fantasy. Yeah, maybe. Like that's the <laughs> Likely, thing. yes. Before, like I would say 2014, there weren't really that many Black people in fantasy. Like you couldn't pick up a fantasy book and see Black people on the cover. That was just not a thing. So there was like this whole community that we were sort of denied access to, you know? And that, of course, is why like a lot of Black people do not identify as fantasy readers because literally we just weren't there, like, or rather we weren't allowed to be there. And so when I get this question of, you know, do I consider myself an Afrofuturist? I think for the Gilded Ones, I would say not really. I would say I am tangentially connected and I'm very excited to be connected and to be talked about in that space. But The reality is I'm a fantasy writer and my stuff is, you know, it's set in like an ancient past. 
that's there's no there's like no feature <laughs> there and the reason why i always give this answer even though like i am honored to be considered part of that canon it is because we black people and people of color are really never considered to be a part of the fantasy canon up until now and i think it's important to claim that like when i set out to be a, a writer i set out to be a fantasy writer i set out to be a children's fantasy writer that was what i wanted to be and with the gilded ones that is what i have done and the other thing i would say is like my other hesitation with afrofuturism and african futurism is like so when i grew up I was a sort of a habitué of like libraries and bookstores. Like at any given moment, like you could find me in a library. And one <laughs> of the most dreadful things to me in the library was the urban section. It was always in the very very back, like almost like this forgotten dusty section, and of course it was all black books. You know, and to me in my mind I was like, wow, they have segregated black books at the back of the library. So like when I think in terms and then like and I will say that this for me is coming from a fear having knocked on the gate for so long cuz it took me 12 years just to get an agent, you know? Like not even to not even to sell a book to get an agent. So like I sort of have a little bit of a fear, well not even a little, a lot of a fear that with black books if we are all sort of compiled into the afrofuturist and african fantasy category that's a way to separate us you know and that and that right there is my fear so again i will say i'm very i'm very honored to be considered part of that category but i will claim very fervently that i'm a fantasy writer and i want to be right there front and center with all the other young adult fantasy books and that's where that comes from I, you know, and I think that's valid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's totally valid to say that because I think you are entirely correct in the sense that like we have not seen ourselves there before. And I don't know that we need to, I mean, as much as, I mean, look, I love the Afrofuturist tradition, but I, I also can e equally agree that we don't necessarily need to categorize everything as that. Yeah. To, because the know. other thing is like, if all the black books that have any hint of fantasy and sci-fi are all put in that category and it's all put in one section that means that then people have to go to that section instead of right. organically finding our books in the middle of everything else and that's that's a very important thing to like sort of like that I think of um as a writer and as somebody who wants people to like everybody not just black people but everybody to pick up my work and find themselves in there well, you are writing for, you know, you said you wanted to be a children's fantasy author and you are writing for a young audience. And I mean, this is as much as it's fantasy, as much as it's anything else, it's a coming of age story. And that is always a very, I think, tenuous and um, delicate uh, ground to tread. Why? Why were you attracted to this particular uh audience. And I guess I'll ask the same question I'd love to ask all of our authors as I'd like to close out our interviews, which is, and how do you hope they'll use it, that this audience, your core audience, because I think adults will get a lot out of this as well, but how do you hope that they will engage with this book? Um, I write for uh, young adults and for children because I think that their minds are the most open. They have that imagination, but it's that imagination sort of coupled 
with exploring the world, wanting to understand what's happening around them. And that's sort of why I write for that age category. And I'm particularly pleased to be writing right now for Gen Z because like they are just so like sort of leagues and leagues ahead of where I was, you know, like when I wrote this book because it was the answer to questions that I had growing up when I was growing up and I saw things and I was deeply frustrated because I was like, why are things the way they are? And then like every time I'd ask, people would sort of tell me, you're the problem. You're the one who's asking these questions. You're the one who's like, you know, sort of making waves. Like, why can't you just be quiet? And it was only when I went to like college and I took women's studies classes that I, that was the aha moment of, oh, this is a system. Oh, the, this is what these things are. And I deeply wished when I, when I was that age, that somebody had reached out to me in book form, because that's all I, that was how I knew how to engage with other people, had reached out to me in book form and explained to me, this is what this is. And so that's why I write for that age category, because when I was a teenager, I felt very lost and alone. I I did not know how to articulate a lot of things, because like, I was this deeply traumatized kid, and like, I was this deeply traumatized African immigrant kid. And like, there wasn't a lot of patience for me, you know, because I wasn't, in many ways, I was not what people wanted or expected. And so I write for any person, particularly any young person, that is, as I was sort of like, in life, trying to figure things out, not really having that guidance, or somebody to hold them. And that's sort of like my hope with my books, I'm like, if you can't find yourself anywhere else in the world, find yourself in my world, because my world is always open to you. And that's why I write. And I hope that uh, what people get out of my work is that only you have the power to define who you are. When you walk out into this world, everybody will always be like waiting, especially when you are a person of color, especially when you are femme presenting, especially when you are queer especially when you are disabled, if you are anything that is not quote unquote in the norm, people are waiting to define you. And I hope that when people read this book, they realize that it is imperative that you claim yourself and you define yourself before anybody else does, because only you at the end of the day, only you have the power to. And that's what I hope people get out of my work. And I also hope that like people find a home in my work. I love that answer. And I, I, I have found myself many times in this conversation, <laughs> seeing many parallels between your, your childhood and my own. So, you know, I thank you for sharing that with us and, and for sharing the Gilded Ones. And I, everybody should check that out if you haven't already. It came out in February, so it, it is available to you. And they can look out for the Merciless Ones in April. And Namina Forna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media.
The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Brian Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we appreciate your feedback so much. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk just a little bit about what we're currently reading. I'm currently reading The Sweetness of Water by Nathan Harris. Uh, Nathan's going to appear with us on the show soon. Uh, I'm getting into this book, which, you know, has already been, you know, endorsed by Oprah and is shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So, you know, I'm going to try not to spoil too much before Nathan comes on the show. But I will say this is a read that everyone should pick up because, you know, in a year where we've seen such tremendous work from Black authors, this is one that has really proven to be a standout. Uh, But that's it for this week. And we thank you so much for listening always. And we will see you next week. In the meantime, you know what to do. Keep it lit.